When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, I'm Scott Soshman. And I'm Eben Novi Williams. And this is the Captain Says Goodbye sports business podcast, The Sportacast. Ladies and gentlemen, now batting the shortstop, number, number two, two, Derek Jeter. Jeter. Number two. <laughs> not bad, right? Good, good. Yeah, Bob Shepard? No, Bob Shepard, yeah, of course. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not, not bad. And should we tell the story? Should we tell the Larry Siddons? Oh, yeah, go for it. Longtime AP editor, reporter Larry Siddons, a former colleague of, of ours. Uh, so much. Oh, I love that Larry used to have the old school Rolodex on his desk and he flipped through and like the numbers have been crossed out a hundred times, right? Yeah. Like wouldn't even ever, he wouldn't upgrade to the Palm Pilot back when that was the thing. Like that was just too much for him. Just kept scratching. He told the great story of being at Yankee Stadium and all of a sudden he hears Bob Shepard make an announcement and the way he tees up the story is it was clear that Bob Shepard had no idea what he was reading but it was on the card so he read it. It was something like, you know, ladies and gentlemen, you know, Please join us uh, August 3rd for a special presentation of Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> <laughs> Bob Shepard could have done a soundtrack to pretty much anything, I think. Yeah, but I don't, I don't see him rocking out to Californication, I got to say. Probably, or, or, probably not. Probably not. If good. you would have said, hey, Bob, what'd you think of Flea's performance? Or Anthony Kiedis, what? <laughs> Just drive him crazy. Anyway, Derek Jeter is in the news. Because uh, it was, was not so long ago, Jeter joined the Florida or Miami Marlins ownership group, uh, group when Bruce Sherman took over. He had a 4% stake of the team as well. And we learned today, Mr. Novi Williams, that uh, Mr. Jeter is walking away from it all. His title is CEO as well as his equity in the franchise. Yeah, the, the announcement that Jeter made throws a little bit of shade here, um, essentially saying that, and I'll, I'll quote here, the future of this franchise is different than the one that I signed up to lead. Uh, so I'm sure there's going to be more kind of coming out of this. The, the interesting thing to me here, Scott, is just how the economics here worked out for Derek. The 4% stake, as you mentioned, paid about $25 million for it five years ago. Now, according to Sportico's numbers, that that 4% stake is now worth almost double that, about $45 million. Well, let's not forget, by the way, as part of his deal, he also had a salary. He of got about paid $5 million, million dollars a year. Yeah, okay. So he yeah, gets paid $25 million, which is what he put in, and essentially gets to keep whatever he sold this thing for, probably around $45 million, just as profit on top of that. This ends up being uh, a pretty good financial deal 
for Derek Jeter. And it makes me think this is kind of exactly why groups like Arctos are so kind of gung-ho to get in on sports teams. This is a, a team, the Marlins, in these five years made the playoffs once. Attendance numbers were not good. This is not a team that was killing it at the box office or killing it in the standings. And yet in five years, this investor essentially doubled the money on his stake. This is exactly why these are the appreciations and the trends that are leading Arctos to buying up as many minority stakes in basketball, baseball, hockey, and maybe sometime football teams as they can possibly get their hands on. Uh, you know, Karnak, are you old enough to know Karnak, I the Johnny Carson, no. you don't know, Ed McMahon, Johnny Carson, like he'd hold, he'd had a big little genie hat and he'd hold up a card and then he'd kind of say what was on the card. <laughs> it was a really funny late night bit. I, I'm going to play Karnak here. I'm going to look forward. Yes, we have like Arctos and Sixth Street and Dial making these investments in teams. They're, they're taking passive stakes, non-controlling stakes, and straight up easy, easy stuff. My, my Karnak uh, here tells me that moving forward, we're going to see more sophisticated capital coming in hmm. and looking in the ecosystem of sport. Where can you make money uh, just in and around sports, whether it be sports tech, whether it be media, whether it be debt financing, whether it be stadium finance, sort of the big boy PE players are going to come in and and look to see how they can leverage the uh, the front porch nature of pro sports. Uh, it'll get them into other deals, but also they'll make money on things like that. And we've seen that a little bit with, with Aries feels like kind of what you're talking yeah. about, right? They do some of the debt financing already. I believe they're they're an investor. Certainly globally, they've done a number of PE deals into, into sports federations and leagues. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Something kind of in that kind of institutional money? Yeah, I, I'm talking big boys. Yeah, you know, when, when you look Apollo. at sort of, yeah, when you look at sort of, yeah, yeah. Uh, so some some sort of AUM of uh, um, of uh, you know hundreds of billions of dollars yeah of assets under management and some a little bit of it will be sprinkled across the sports scene yes sure Silver Lake stuff like that um, the uh, another thing that I just wanted to to mention on Jeter is that it's it's kind of an interesting time for this announcement to come out right as as there's so much debate right now during the lockout about how lucrative it is to be a, a baseball owner how much risk they they put out there. Uh, again, those numbers that I just read, I think are, are going to be ammunition for players if they need it in the negotiating table as we speak right now or, t or tomorrow or later this week to point to and say, look, like the, the argument here that it's so difficult being a major league baseball owner, like look at Derek Jeter again, uh, five years in this team and a team that did not perform particularly well business wise or on the field. And again, he's getting out at, at essentially two X what he put in, in those five years, this seems like at least timing wise, kind of an interesting moment or interesting insight financially into what it means to be a baseball owner at a time when, when the owners and the players are sitting across from each other arguing about that exact topic. Yeah. Well, I, I always ask you this, you know, it's always framed as billionaires versus millionaires and all that. And, yeah. and, and we've heard that. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I've always said I, I, I could never figure out why the players often took the rap in labor negotiations. I, I guess it's just people are like, well, they're playing a game and I can relate to playing the game and they should be happy just to make the living they make and play. And I get it. And years ago, the NBPA in one of its labor strife moments made a deck of playing cards with the NBA owners and their net worths on them just to make sure everybody understood who these folks were and how much money they already have. And we've heard from a, a number of people now on the union side of the differing sports associations that the players are starting to kind of demand equity. How do we get equity? How are we partners, real partners? Because you'll always hear both sides are mostly for ownership, labor, and management. You hear management saying, it's a partnership. It has to be a partnership. So the players are like, all right, let's figure out a way, make it a true partnership. 
How do we get equity in these ventures so that we can also enjoy the appreciation of the asset? Then the counterclaim from the owners is that, well, 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 ho, ho, pump the brakes. I'm the one taking all the, the risk. risk here. Ah, it's my capital putting to what happens if this thing tanks? Do you share in that? Do you share in capital calls as well? Right. And I oftentimes had very little sympathy for the argument because over time we've seen what happens. It's kind of a regular pace appreciation. of appreciation, <laughs> yeah. right? You kind you kind of yeah. do. But I gotta say, there was a smidge, a smidge of my thinking, <clears throat> excuse me, when COVID hit. Or I was like, ooh, I didn't see global pandemic. <laughs> I didn't see complete shutdown of the game, you know, on my bingo card. Didn't have that. Uh, would the players be willing to fund those losses? If, and by the way, we're talking two years, three. Who knows, right? I mean, now you have to you have to think about it that the unforeseen, because if somebody came to me three years ago, eh, it's going to be a pandemic. It's going to shut down everything, and there's going to be no games, no broke, nothing. Yeah, all right. Well, what? Two months, one month, even when this started, like when Rudy Gobert walked off that court and everybody was gone, you were like, all right, what? A couple of months, we'll be back, right? Nope, (laughs) not so much. So just sort of this unforeseen risk, I believe, does ring a bit more true. That is not to say that you can't figure out a mechanism, difficult albeit, but a mechanism by which the players could be considered or, or at least in more of a partnership role, sharing in the appreciation of the assets. And we saw this kind of this dynamic millionaires versus billionaires play out a little bit in these baseball talks last week. I don't know if you caught the 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 uproar over Max Scherzer's Porsche. Yeah, he drove up in a Porsche. Yeah, yeah. How dare he? Porsche, and suddenly it becomes, oh yeah, this guy's driving a $200,000 car to meetings complaining about how much they're compensated. And then other people chiming in showing that Steve Cohen owns an $8 million formaldehyde shark that, that he keeps in his apartment. Just kind of showing that again, it's it, how ridiculous it is to kind of frame these players as the rich ones. It's when in reality, the people Eben, their it's checks absolutely are ridiculous. But yes, level. but I yeah, absolutely that is the reality. Yeah, but we all know what counts here is the perception for sure. And if yeah. I was counseling Max Scherzer and I saw him getting into his Porsche, whatever it is, I would have told him that's a bad idea. I'm going to give you an example from politics. I knew a U.S. senator. And I'm not going to say who, and I'm not going to say the state. You know, but you got to be quiet. <laughs> I was say, I know exactly you know, but you got to be quiet. <laughs> who around DC drove one car, a luxury model, very nice. But when this person went back to their home state, mm. they drove around a very different car. Sure. So it, it is the perception. Voters saw that person in. I would say it a later model, <laughs> U.S. You know, automaker. DC was a tad different. Uh, same here. I, I would have counseled and tell him to bring a Prius to the to the labor talks. I'm not even sure a Prius. <laughs> Frankly, I would have had them all get out of Ubers, like and just say, "Up, oh, had to let the car go." You know, it wasn't it wasn't gas prices are up. We may not play. We got to be sensible here. We're not as rich as the owners, right? You know, we didn't take the Gulf Stream into the negotiations. So we just thought this was the, uh, the, the, the financial uh, uh, smartest, the smartest way to go about it would be just to sort of let the cars go, pinch a penny now and take the Uber. Sure. Well, let's so so what we can transition here. Cheater has sold a stake in his equity. Uh, Speaking of teams yeah, worth a lot of money, yeah, exactly has sold a uh, his equity stake in, in a team worth about one point one billion dollars, according to Sportico. There is a team worth about four billion dollars, 
on the market right now, the Denver Broncos, Scott. And we published something on, on Sportico this week, uh, taking a look at kind of an intricacy that we've flicked out a bit on this show, but diving deeper into this idea that because the Broncos are being sold by trustees through as part of an estate sale, that there is a little bit of a different way this plays out than normal private sales in which the NFL and the team can kind of pick and choose among the bidders who they like the most. They don't have to take the highest offer, et cetera. The Broncos sale is going to work out a little differently in a way that gives less control to the NFL and to the Broncos themselves. Yes. And in real life terms, let's give an example. Yeah. So in 2014, the Milwaukee Bucks were on the market. Senator Herb Cole wanted to sell the Bucks. Bunch of people showed up, as we know, among them, a group with Mark Lassery, Jamie Dynan, and Wes Edens, and also a guy you may have heard of, uh, Steve Ballmer, right? Steve Ballmer came in and offered $100 more, $100 million more, sorry, $100 million more. And by the way, the price anyway, everyone was laughing at, at the group where they, they eventually paid, and it turned out to be a great move. So Ballmer comes in and he offers $100 million more. Ballmer, of course, was a resident or is a resident, probably still has a nice place, in Seattle which had lost a team, and gee, it didn't take a lot to connect the dots, saying Steve Ballmer might want to move a franchise if he bought one to Seattle, right? Okay. Only Herb Cole has a soft spot for Milwaukee and Wisconsin. So he said, you know, these other guys are willing to agree that they will not move the franchise. Steve Ballmer was not willing to make that commitment, I don't believe. So that is why he took a lower dollar figure. Now, if this was the Denver Broncos situation, if this had been the uh, a trust and estate sale of Senator Herb Cole, they could not have done that. There's a fiduciary responsibility to maximize the asset. In, in plain English, that means you got to get the most money. So that's what's happening here. And it matters, and I'll let you take it away because you asked the question of, of Roger Goodell at his Super Bowl press conference about how much money can you make, but so much of it was, was focused on minority ownership. Um, I, I'll tee it up in saying it matters in this instance with the Broncos because Roger Goodell has said he wants to have minority owner of the Denver Broncos. Now, he can't make that happen unless whoever that person is bids the most money. Exactly. The, the example that was given to me is, is, is think about a world in which there's a, a, a black billionaire who offers $4.1 billion for the Broncos. And then there's a, a group, way less diverse group of people that, that offer $4.2 billion. The, the NFL, for a number of reasons, would want that, that lower offer, right? They, they like single owners putting all the liquidity in themselves as opposed to a bigger group where there's a lot of potential fighting that has to happen if anything goes wrong. Uh, and Roger said, as you mentioned at the Super Bowl, he's talked with Byron Allen. The league has done a lot of work trying to make its ownership ranks more diverse. Uh, there's a lot of reasons why in a private sale, they might prefer that lower offer. But the truth is, as you mentioned, because of the fiduciary duty, they have a, a, an obligation to, to, to accept the highest qualified offer. Um, and I say highest qualified offer, that's the terminology that's being used by the bankers and the team and the league. That's important because qualified is the is kind of the, the, the place in which there's maybe a little bit of wiggle room here for the league. And we've seen in, in estate sales in the past where the highest bidder often doesn't end up with the team because of difficulties, uh, essentially, with the, with, with the qualified part of that. If you remember when, when the Washington football team was sold to Dan Snyder, I don't believe he was the highest bidder. I believe there was a bidder that came out above him that was not able to get approved or get qualified by the league. So there is some wiggle room here. But I think the example you gave of, 
of, of the bucks is such a good one because I think a lot of people out there assume that in these auctions, highest bidder is going to get the team. And the truth is that whether it's because of diversity in the case of the Bucks, whether it's about relocation of the team and, and, and caring about the locality, whether it's the, the the makeup of the team, how many of the group, how many people are in it, where they get their money, et cetera, there's a whole lot of ways in which teams and leagues typically have a preference that isn't just the highest bidder that gets factored in here. And again, with the estate sale, a lot of those things kind of go out the window. Yeah, with the Clippers, the NBA kind of reversed it a little bit, kind of reverse engineered. They pre-approved the bidders. Like you weren't getting to the end of that process. And then all of a sudden, oh, nope, not good. You don't have the money. Something tells me very soon that if you're interested in bidding on this team, you will have to first show the the NFL you got the money. Like they're going to want to see proof of funds. And then they can vet a little further. And then from that pool of people who get vetted, then Allen Allen and Company can do its thing and figure out who's going to get the team. Yeah, and the Clippers are a great example here because that that's, I think, exactly what the NFL wants to happen here. That, that sale was obviously a mess for so many reasons. One area where it was not a mess was the bidding. There, there, there was nobody within $400 million of Steve Ballmer, and he bought the team for $2 million, and, it was, and it, the, the choosing of who among the bidders was going to be the one to get the team was easy because Steve Ballmer is an extremely qualified person to be an NBA owner. I'm sure the NBA loved the idea of getting him in there, especially after he got kind of boxed out in Milwaukee. And he was the highest bid by a by a, by a large margin. So I think the dream here for the NFL and where this estate sale maybe becomes less of an issue is if the person that they really want, that the ideal buyer is also the highest bidder by a large margin, that essentially removes a lot of the kind of questions and the qualifications around this moving forward. Yeah, it used to be, well, we need another Steve Ballmer. And then if we want to bring it back to NFL-centric, now it's going to be, we need another David Tepper, right? And a lot of that, by the way, we I don't think we can ignore the ownership rules, the NFL's ownership rules. Like They're pretty strict. And you have to have some considerable dough uh, liquid to make to make a bid on this team. Like an NFL owner, the, the general partner, must hold 30% of the team. The debt limit on a team is a billion dollars. And there's a limit to how many people can be in a group. I think the NFL is 25. And they don't even want close to that. They, they would prefer the one guy with the mega satchel of bucks to come on in and say, I want to buy the team. Then if I wish to later on syndicate and maybe bring in some partners, fine, that, that's the way it, it'll go. But we'll remember in that Carolina Panthers sale, uh, David Tepper wasn't exactly um, bombarded with competition, right? It's not like a whole lot of people showed up for that and said, I want this team. There wasn't that frothy frothiness to, uh, <laughs> to quote uh, a, a former, uh, who was it, Alan Greenspan? Was that uh, irrational exuberance frothy? Who said frothy? What oh, do we I got don't there? know. I don't remember. I, you know, I'm tired. But um, you know, there, there wasn't a, a, a cavalcade of people stepping up to buy that team. And it had the NFL taking a look at its rules. But from what we understand, these rules are not going to change. So you're, you're going to need a lot of money to come and buy the Denver Broncos. You are probably the most clued in reporter in, in the team sale world. Do you, oh, get a thanks, sense, do you get a sense that there are team sales where everybody knows they're being sold for X and Y because of whoever owned it previously? Jerry Richardson's a good example. Donald Sterling, a really good example. What's happening with the Broncos, another really good example. It, it is obvious this team is on the market. We know it because we know who has it now and they have to sell it. And then there are sales like what happened with the Jazz, for example, two years ago in the NBA, where we knew that they were kind of on the market, that they were maybe shopping. Everything happened very quietly. There wasn't a big auction process. They had a guy, Ryan Smith, 
local billionaire already had business relationships with the team. They hammered out an agreement. They got a price they liked. They announced the deal. Do you get a sense that that those kind of quieter, cleaner sales are exactly what leagues like the NFL and the NBA want? Or do they want kind of the big circus kind of speculation auction style that we're going to get with the Broncos that's much more high profile, but also doesn't maybe allow for a very quiet process that ends up getting your guy at, at exactly the price you want? Yeah, well, I mean, if we're looking at the Clippers, everybody remembers the circumstances surrounding that sale and why Donald Sterling was stripped of the team. So does a league want that? No, no, <laughs> no, yeah. no, they do. They do not. They do not want prolonged public battle. No. What every commissioner in every major sports league does as part of his job or her job is to line up prospective buyers on this metaphorical runway. Right, Your job is to meet people who are interested in getting into your league, uh, start those discussions, maybe getting them in as limited partners on a franchise. That's the best training ground there is to see if this is something you really want to do. Uh, so given the druthers, if the numbers are right, I'm sure Adam Silver and the other NBA owners were thrilled that nobody was speculating for months on end as what was going to happen with the Utah Jazz. And then, boom, all of a sudden, they can announce a qualified guy to come in and run the franchise. Uh, I, I don't think the NBA or the NFL in this case really needs a long, drawn-out spectacle. They want the right person that, by the way, I have heard, like this is in limited partnerships now. Everybody comes with cash, right? So when you're looking to bring on an investor, I hear a lot of GPs these days saying, what, what else are you bringing in? Like It's not enough to come with money. So... I'm not a uh, I'm not an expert if I'm a GP. I'm not an, ex- an expert in finance. I'm not an, an expert in, in Bitcoin. I'm not an expert in crypto. I'm not an expert. You want to bring somebody in. Go take a look. I think the best uh, example of this now, let me see if you know where I'm going, which team in-house could be the best example of a lead owner and then all the investors that can pretty much take care of everything in-house, including the financing and building of a new arena downtown. Hello, Golden State Warriors. I'll take you yeah. off the hook. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Take a look at that cap table of that team. And there's a diverse background of core competencies in that ownership group. And that more and more is important these days when these, when these teams slash platform companies, thank you, Sam Kennedy, are looking to do all the things they're doing. Yeah, it, it makes me think in, in some ways that, that maybe the fact that the part of this, the estate sale aspect of this, that is maybe the most unappealing to the league is, is what you were talking about there before, which is just how public all of this is. And, and and a banker told me the other day that if this if this team sells for a number that begins with a three, yeah, it's going to look like a huge, massive disappointment for the NFL. When in reality, the Broncos selling for $3.9 billion, which is higher than, than we valued them. We had them about 3.8. If they sell for $3.9 billion, that's just a, it's a huge number. It's a record for a sports franchise. That's a great result for the NFL. But because of how public all this is, because of how public the speculation is, anything under four is just going to look bad. And that is obviously something the NFL doesn't want as well. Whatever Kurt Bodenhausen says is the right value is the right value. If somebody wants to <laughs> overpay, fine, but they better not offer a nickel less than what Kurt Bodenhausen says. All right. There you go. There That's you where go. I go. Speaking of that, by the way, and I, I guess we'll talk about valuation because darn, I want to, uh, but Roman Abramovich has. Uh, handed over stewardship of Chelsea Football Club, obviously a marquee name in the English Premier League, uh, to its charitable foundation. Uh, he denies this is because of any sanctions possibly coming 
and he's Russian and the invasion of Ukraine. Okay, fine. But uh, of course, that has triggered wild speculation that Abramovich is going to sell Chelsea. Hmm. And this is the part I like, because like you just said, anything less than X will be a big disappointment. I don't think I've heard a really smart discussion on a valuation of Chelsea Football Club. And that's because I haven't talked to Kurt Bottenhausen about this, because <laughs> then I would have. I got, that'd be a self-fulfilling prophecy. But you, I mean, you just hear these wild numbers. It's Chelsea and it might hit the market. I, I get it. Now, the people I've spoken with who kind of, you know, pay attention to things like PL statements, they'll tell you that, yes, they win what they won the Champions League in 2021, right? Mm -hmm. And they've got a whole bunch of EPL titles or, yeah, okay. So great. But, and yes, absolutely a global brand right now. And you know, I'm a big fan of Didier Drogba. So, you, you, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to disparage. Um, but Abramovich has lost a ton of money every year to achieve these results. And we're talking like, what, $150, $200 million per year funding this team. Are you going to find the, who is the next person with the deep pockets of Abramovich that is going to be willing to come in and lose $200 million a year for the right to say, I own Chelsea and look at this trophy I have? It's a great, it's a great question. Kurt put Chelsea at 3.3 billion, but you're right. The economics of European soccer are so different than the economics of American sports because of the way the salary structure works there. We look, we see every year the way when Real Madrid and Barcelona declare revenue and, and expenses, they make a billion dollars a year in revenue. It's a massive number. They spend a billion dollars a year in player and cost and expenses. The, the, the margins are extremely thin. And the way European soccer is going, for Chelsea to continue to be one of the best teams in the world, Roman has to continue to spend the way that sovereign wealth funds are willing to spend. And, and Roman is a very rich man. He does not have the money that the, the, the QSI has for, for Paris Saint-Germain. He does not have the money that the people who own Man City do. Uh, you're right. The, the, the economics here, again, are so different because of how expensive and how kind of uncapped spending is in European soccer. I think it would be fascinating if Chelsea hit the market just because we would get some of the answers yeah. to these questions. Because again, the American sports structure is, is structured in a way. I mean, if, it, if it, it, there, there's probably never been uh, an American sports team that's lost $100 million in a year. And it'll probably never happen because of the way that these things are structured. But it's it's not that uncommon, I don't think, in, in your, at the top top level of European soccer. I think you shorted Sheikh Mansour by not mentioning him. You know, you just wanted to say, you know, Man City and let's not leave out our friends NYCFC yep. champions of MLS, which just started its season. Hello, Dan Cordomash. Uh, I haven't, you know what, all this time, I haven't picked a, I haven't picked an MLS team to root for. Oh, I assume you would lean on your son for that. Well, my, my focus group of one. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you know, we, I mean, we go sometimes and. He, he has a good time, him and his pals, but he hasn't picked a team. I'd you like to take him to a Timbers people, game. Shouldn't you? Cause you're yeah, well, yeah, that's where we've one, been most sure. often. We've yeah. been most often. Well, we used to live in the city, so I, he does love, I will say this, NYCFC has a great drum line, hmm. and the band, and they go outside and play outside the subway after the game and stuff. He, do, he does love that, has a good time. But I think, he'd, I think he'd really get a kick out of going to Portland or Seattle. Yeah. Like the really, really crazy. He wants to sit in the supporter section. We covered, or uh, we went into a Copa match years ago. Who was it? Um, it was Argentina, Chile, hmm. Copa final at uh, MetLife, and he, that's where he learned he learned all the bad words in Spanish. 
So for a couple of weeks after that, he was saying a lot of things he should not. Yeah, yeah, do not repeat, but that's what he's doing. Anyway, he is Eben Novi Williams on the Twitter at Novi underscore Williams. I am Scott Soshnick on Twitter at Soshnick. Our producer is Matt Whitehurst. Thank you very much, Matt. Our social media editor is Cora Veltman. She loves it when I remind you the show can be found at Sportacast, which is the hub of what will soon become the Sportico Media Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.